successful people make their own luck? What do we think? Do successful people make their own luck? Well, as good Christians, of course, we don't believe in luck, do we? That was the answer I was waiting for someone to shout out. But interestingly, an American entrepreneurial website answered this question by listing five things that all successful people do to create their own luck. The article began with this premise. Ask incredibly successful entrepreneurs or people incredibly successful in any pursuit, and all of them will say luck played an important role in their success. Take, for example, Bill Gates. Bill Gates was lucky enough to go to one of the few schools with a teletype connection so he could learn to program. And Paul Allen was lucky enough to stumble across an article that led to the idea to convert BASIC into a product that could be used on an Alt-Air computer. And lucky enough to be friends with Bill Gates, who was lucky enough then to be at Harvard with access to a PDP-10 computer to use to develop and test a new operating system. So were Bill and Paul simply lucky? Well, of course not. The article stated that luck isn't just a random gift from the universe, although winning the lottery, that kind of is a random gift, um, but that's a different kind of luck. That's not the luck we're talking about. Luck actually has less to do with what happens to you and more with how you think and you act. In chapter one, it seemed like for Ruth and Naomi that they were incredibly unlucky. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, Marlon and Chilion, that mean death and sickness or something like that, um, they, they had to leave Bethlehem because of the famine. And they chose to go to a place called Moab. And Moab was a place that was traditionally hostile to Israelites and also had a reputation for immorality and the, the worship of, of other gods that included even child sacrifice. So not really the place where you think you're going to take your family off to find some bread. But that's where they went. And the sons married Moabite wives, Ruth and Oprah. And then all the men died. And so Ruth and Oprah and Naomi, their mother-in-law, they were all widowed. And then Naomi hears that there's bread again in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, remember, means house of bread. So there's bread again in the house of bread, where ironically there was no bread before. And now that the husband is brown bread and the breadwinner is no more... They make their way back to the house of bread. Great. I'm really pleased that you laughed at the same joke two weeks in a row. Thank you very much. Anyway, they decide to return to Bethlehem, and Naomi says to Ruth and to Orpah, don't come with me. Go back to your own mothers. Stay here. And Orpah does exactly that. She turns away, and she goes back to her mother. But amazingly, Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. She makes this amazing commitment to Naomi, and even a commitment that her God will be her God, that she's going to follow the Lord. She's going to commit herself. And so she returns to Bethlehem with her bitter mother-in-law. Have you heard the phrase that it's darkest before the dawn? You heard that one? Well, actually, we saw a little glimpse of the new day rising, didn't we? Just at the end of the chapter. At the end of this time of great darkness, because Ruth had committed herself radically to Naomi, that was the first glimmer of great hope. And the second was that the barley harvest was beginning. Now the author is clear that this is a story of God's providence. 
And in verse 1 of chapter 2, I don't know if you noticed it, we were let into a secret that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. A detail that's going to be very, very important in this story as we go on. Verse 1, though, also highlights Boaz's character. And the same phrase is used by Boaz to describe Ruth's character later in chapter 3. He's described here as a man of standing. A phrase that carries with it a sense of valor and honor and might and loyalty. And so the writer is introducing us to an interplay between God's providence and the character and the actions of Ruth and Boaz. And in these four short verses, we see Ruth do the exact five things that the apparently lucky, successful people do. Now, that's not to say that you can't be of good character and be unsuccessful. But these five approaches are here and clearly highlighted for us in the text. Now, remember, this is wisdom literature. Although we find it next to Judges in the Bible, originally it was in the wisdom writings amongst five scrolls that also included Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and various other things. Now, we should expect to find some instruction for how to live. And we've certainly got some here. The five things, I bet you're just itching to know, aren't you? The five things that successful people do, according to the article, are that they meet more people, they try more, they expand their boundaries, they give, and they ask. And Ruth begins by asking. Let me go, she says. In business, luck comes from someone saying yes to a proposal or to a pitch. And no one can say yes unless you ask. And so Ruth comes into Dragon's Den. She comes before Naomi, her bitter mother-in-law, who was a bit of a dragon. And she pitches that she's going to go out into the fields and to glean. And Naomi says yes to the proposal. Now her request to glean... This is a key word, and as we go on in the chapter next week, we'll see that it's actually introduced to us here in verse 3, but it's repeated 12 times throughout the chapter. We're not to miss it. This is a key detail. It was determined in the law of the land that the land must not be reaped right to the borders, and the landowner must not go back and pick up any of the crops that have been dropped. It was effectively a, a welfare system um, for ancient Israel. And it was done as a provision for the poor. It was a right that was also specifically granted for widows in Deuteronomy. So Ruth begins by asking. The second principle is her motivation to give. Now, if she was just thinking about herself, then like Oprah, she would have gone back to her own mother and gone back to her family amongst her own people. But she chose to stay with Naomi She chose to commit herself to Naomi. And so she goes out to glean to provide for Naomi. Have you heard the phrase that birds of a feather flock together? Familiar with that one? Well, the article also states, uh, Dharmish Shah, who's the, the writer of the article, he says, mediocrity tends to flock with mediocrity. Exceptional tends to flock with exceptional. Only fools tend to suffer fools gladly. Generous people tend to associate with generous people. Giving creates relationships. And we see at the end of the chapter that in response to Ruth's generosity to Naomi, 
Boaz is in turn extremely generous to Ruth. But that's for next week. The third principle that we see is that Ruth tries, and she tries hard. Gleaning was an exhausting task. It was also a very dangerous place to be, out in the open fields, alone and vulnerable. And again, later in the chapter, Boaz will ensure that she is protected by his men and that she works alongside his servant girls so that she is safe. Gleaning was a task that required great perseverance. And again, later in the chapter, the foreman will comment of Ruth's great commitment that, she, that she's done it all day long, that she only took a small break in the shelter, coming away from the heat of the day. It seems that providence and perseverance go hand in hand. It's also clear in the chapter that Ruth hasn't gleaned before. Boaz instructs his men not to embarrass her if she makes a mistake of gleaning from among the sheaves. She's clearly here employing another one of our five principles. She is expounding her boundaries. She's learning a new skill in a new environment. Finally, fifth and final principle that she takes is that she puts herself out there to meet new people. You've probably heard it said that successful people seem to be in the right place at the right time and meet the right people. Is it luck? No. Successful people put themselves out there time and time and time again. And they take the opportunities to meet people and to talk to people. I wonder how many people do you pass in a single day? Just think about it. In your, in your average day, how many people do you go past? How many people do you pass by and not engage with when you could? The person in the queue next to you in the shop. Or the person that comes into your workplace. Or the person next to you on the train, or as is more likely currently in the northwest, the person on the platform next to you when the train's cancelled. Today, also, we can connect with anyone with a carefully crafted tweet that goes viral. Social media has opened up all sorts of new range of possibilities. These are all the opportunities that successful people take. And you never, ever know who you may just end up talking to. In these chance encounters, you may also end up with the opportunity to talk about Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 states, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Every day, every day, Today is full of opportunity and potential, of people that we can interact with. Today is a new day. There are new mercies this day. We don't believe in luck. And it's not something that you can make or create. But you can develop your character to grow as a disciple of Jesus, to become more and more like him. That's our daily purpose. And God gives us amazing opportunities to do that. That's our, our general calling as Christians. Our general calling is to become more like Jesus. To give glory to him as we are transformed to become more and more like him. But God also has a specific calling and a specific purpose for every person here. 
Every person here is full of potential. And your interaction with someone else can allow that potential to come out. Maybe you already know what that is. Maybe you feel that God has called you to something or to somewhere. But maybe, maybe that hasn't happened yet. Maybe, I I don't know how you are feeling today, but maybe you identify more with Naomi in chapter one. You're, You're still there going, things are feeling pretty dark for me. Things aren't really turning out how I expected. Well, do you know what? It's usually dark before the dawn. Look for the glimmers of light. The miserable Welsh poet, R.S. Thomas, said, The meaning is in the waiting. It's in the waiting that God develops our character. But it's an active waiting. The story of Ruth shows to us that our waiting isn't sitting still. Our waiting is one where we take action. Wayne Grudem, the reformed systematic theologian, states, The doctrine of providence in no way encourages us to sit back in idleness, to await the outcome of certain events. Of course, God may impress on us the need to wait on him before we act and to trust him rather than in our own abilities. That is certainly not wrong. But simply to say that we are trusting in God instead of acting responsibly is sheer laziness and is a distortion of the doctrine of providence. You don't often find things like that in a book of systematic theology. It may as well have the title, Wake Up! Well, maybe God's asking us to wake up this morning. The dawn is coming. The light is coming. The opportunities are here. There's people all around you to interact with. So wake up. Don't sit back. Take hold of the opportunity. Be like Ruth. Get out there. Get out. Meet some people. Try more. Expound your boundaries. Give generously. And ask. The dawn is coming. Amen. Amen.